Hello and welcome to Breaking Social. I'm Alex. And I'm Joe. And this week we're speaking to the Vice President of International Marketing and Communications at Headspace, Louise Troen. Louise has an incredible CV. She started out working at a behemoth PR and publicity company, Freud's, before becoming one of the first employees at Bumble, where she was responsible for going brand awareness in the UK. Following this, she headed up the marketing at Formula E, where she was then headhunted by Headspace, tasked with the challenge of expanding their global presence. We chat to Louise about her marketing principles, how she paved such a huge path for herself as a mission-driven person, and how she takes brands from new product startup to global leaders within their space. Welcome to the podcast. And although you're you're now Vice President of International Marketing and Communications at Headspace, you've had a really interesting story and career up until this point that started in publicity and PR in 2010. So did you always know that you wanted to get into PR? And did you know what it was at the time? Or was it just something that you were looking to get involved in? Absolutely not. I had no idea what PR was. And I actually left university. um, And my first work experience was working for a documentary production company um, in Hammersmith. Um, And I managed to somehow wrangle my way to being an assistant um, and ended up working on geographical documentaries. So my research tasks were measuring the velocity of a magma chamber and all these things that I had absolutely no interest in, but I was fascinated by the storytelling industry of documentary making and how um, you know these production agencies and companies came up with these creative concepts that then brought to life um, you know, education around relevant topics that were then distributed to kind of mass audiences. And so I ended up working initially for this production company called Pioneer Productions uh, and really got interested and passionate about um, untapping sort of potential stories that, that interest people. And that started in that initial space, you know, geographical space, which I really didn't like. Um, and then the CEO of the company actually said to me, um, you're really good at storytelling and you're really good at coming up with a vision and articulating that, but this is absolutely the wrong company for you and you're terrible at the research work around all of the stuff we ask you for. Um, And he actually reached out to me about a year ago and was like, I'm really sorry if that was untoward. And I was like, no, it was actually really useful. So he said to me, "You, you should go and work in PR because you end up working with brands that need their stories telling to mass audiences in a really creative way. And, you know, you'll get the breadth at an agency of various different clients and categories and brands Um, And at the time, I didn't even really know what a brand was and and what that meant. So I just did a ton of research into, you know, Googling best and biggest agencies in London and fell across Freud Communications and somehow found myself in in PR. But it was definitely not an intentional or linear um, entry point, uh, that's for sure. So just so I've got that right, you actually went to Freud's more more so just because of your interest in storytelling, what what your CEO at the time had told you that, you know, this is something that you should look at. PR is probably the way to go. And that's how you started there. Yeah, I don't think he even really knew what PR was. He just thought I was a really chatty, young, ambitious um, individual who was constantly saying, you know, why don't we put this spin on it? And why don't we go with this headline? And he was like, I don't think you're in the right industry. Um, <laughs> but I don't think he kind of brought that to me as a mentor sort of with mentor in, in mind. I think he was literally like, get out of the company, you're not very useful. Um, 
But but what I did do is I, I wrote down all of the kind of consumer products, brands that I liked and was interested in that I thought were you know, very on a, on a very basic level, do, level doing cool things. And at the time, Freud's had Nike. They had uh, they just won Airbnb as a brand and a, and a client. Uh, and they were also looking to launch Soho House uh, and the collective of Soho House. So I was I was really coming into the company at a time when a lot of these mission-driven kind of social impact cultural brands were starting to realize that there was a weight of opportunity for them within the consumer space. Um, And I probably didn't realize at the time why I was interested in that or how I was going to show up and be useful in that work. But I knew that there was sort of a shift happening at that time back in 2010 and I wanted to be be a part of it. Um, And I think that's sort of one of the beauties of my entire career is that I haven't really known what the direction is, but I've kind of felt and, and been led by intention and instinct more than kind of rational thought. Just before we uh, get on to your time at Exposure, because then you then went on to become Director of Communications at Exposure, I was just interested in where you feel like this innate instinct for following that kind of storytelling path come from in you. What do you think is, what do you think it is about your personality or what you, what you, where your drive comes from that has led you down this path? I grew up in a family that was based in the UK, but I never really felt British. There was always a lot of conversations in the house. My dad is Danish. They, my parents now live in, in Switzerland. He spent a lot of time traveling when I was younger to the Middle East and Asia. Um, and so I sort of always came back with these stories about him landing in Delhi and having these meetings with you know business folk that he was doing deals with. And I, I was always so fascinated that he could just get on a flight and go to Delhi and do a business deal. And I remember thinking, you know, what is it about culture and sort of his drive and ambition to do as much work internationally as possible, knowing that that really fulfilled him. And I, I was always just really inspired by his kind of go-getter approach to, to kind of do business internationally. Um, and with that, I just remember really feeling passionate to to kind of get as clear an understanding as how are these countries different what are the stories that people are telling in each of these regions and then sort of as I I started to get into the work of PR I realized that all of these brands um, could be and should be scaled internationally but what that meant was really trying to understand you know what it meant for a brand like Airbnb unleashing the sharing economy, a whole new infrastructure in terms of the way that people made money in in Europe versus the Middle East? Or, you know, what are the regulations and legislations in, you know, the Asia Pacific region that stop them from, from constructing the business in a certain way? And I just was really fascinated about global business and how you take either, you know, an individual project or, or a brand or a business and, and kind of take it to as many markets as possible. And I think that came from being really curious at a young age and sort of seeing my father run around the world, you know, with his fingers in lots of different international business pies and and really wanting to understand how is that done and how can I help new brands scale and and grow in the most effective way in different places around the world. So how did that that experience or that interest help you at when you moved into exposure? And um, what did that entail and what did you what did you do there? So actually, just before exposure, I ended up living in LA for a couple of years. So I was at Freud's and was sort of living, working, breathing in the traditional, you know, structure of many PR companies, which is you get promoted after a year. Um, I think I got about two grand extra in my salary, which is 
you know, significant at the time. But I really took a look at the next kind of eight years of my life and was thinking, you know, this is going to be a slow and long old journey for me to climb up this career ladder. Um, And it's funny because I think at a young age, you're often told to kind of commit to one company and and build your legacy within that business. Um, You grow within the company, the employee looks, the employer, sorry, looks after you. Um, But I was sort of watching lots of talented people across lots of different industries stay at the same businesses and not jump as fast or with the pace that I thought that I could. And I think a lot of that came down to kind of naivety and ambition, you know, probably would have served me well to stay there. But I was seeing a lot of a lot of activity PR wise happening in LA. And so I ended up um, saving for six months and, and quitting and, and taking a flight to, to Los Angeles um, and finding a woman there that, that hired me as a publicist for a very small PR firm in West Hollywood. And she sponsored my visa for a year and a half. Uh, and at the time, everyone, all of my friends were like, you'll, ne- you'll never be able to move to America. It's a bit like I don't know if you've seen Love Actually, but when Colin yeah. moves and he's like, I'm going to America. And everyone's like, no, that was literally <laughs> my life, especially kind of, you know, 12 years ago. And I ended up having the most incredible experience where I was thrown into a role that was probably far too senior than I was, um, really flying by the seat of my pants, um, had my kind of first induction with the team and was given clients like um, Paris Hilton, um, Afrojack, the EDM DJ, Cesar Milan. He was a dog whisperer at the time that was kind of taking the US by storm. So a real cross-section and quite random collection of clients. And my role was to really support their, their PR opportunity. So I really got thrown in the deep end for a, a good 18 months in terms of, you know, how do you take all these different categories and people and businesses and platforms uh, and, and grow them through the value of, of public relations. Um, ended up coming back to the UK and working at Exposure. And I think the experience that um, that LA you know, moment gave me was a real confidence and the courage of my own conviction that whatever the campaign or whatever the challenge or the brief from a client, anything is possible. And I really still believe that. And I, I really learned that in that year and a half that you can be put in environments where you absolutely think that you're going to sink and it is all about the mindset of knowing that you will make it and it will end up being okay but just trusting that there are always going to be growing pains through that process and I think before that experience in LA whenever I sort of came up against challenges or friction I would always go internal and my confidence would be affected and I would really doubt my ability and I think being thrown into an environment where you have to swim or you lose your visa and you're moved out of the country gave me that bedrock that when I joined Exposure every client that came into the business it was how can we make this the most visionary app? How can we create the most extreme and extraordinary experiential you know, launch moment for you as, as a product or a brand that worked with the company? Um, and I kind of took that thinking into my philosophy as a, as a leader as well, that, that anything really is possible. And it's really about our mindsets and our, our kind of courage of our own conviction and belief systems that, that help us to achieve. That's amazing. That's almost like the, that reminded me of like the classic hero's journey that you hear about in storytelling where you go to a new sort of lands out of your comfort zone and bring <laughs> yeah. back something uh new as, as a changed person but but, um, but also remember everyone in LA was very cool and I was not cool at all I had no fr- <laughs> I had no friends I literally did not have one friend and I remember getting to the airport and being like oh I guess I should like rent a car 
And I remember being on the phone to my mom and she was just like, just come home. Like, we know this is a bad idea. But I was so convinced that I was going to live this like American dream. And, and it ended up sort of happening for me. I, you know, I came back to London in the end just because I missed my family more than anything and, and kind of carried on my career there. But it was a real life lesson that when people say you can't do it, the, you know, it's only because it hasn't been done um, or they haven't done it. So um, that was, yeah, that was pretty formative for me. That was something that I kind of, I feel like the people listening could get value from in what was it that, because I feel like a lot of people will get to that point where they will dream of this idea of a massive change in their life and going to really push themselves out of their comfort zone and knowing that, and they'll get to that kind of edge of the cliff and stop and think, oh no, maybe I can't do it. Maybe it's not the right time or come up with a bunch of different excuses as to why they shouldn't do it. What was it for you that was the thing that made you jump over? I knew there was something better than the environment that I was working in. And I really believed that if I put myself in the right situation, the best things would come to me and the right things would land on my lap. I absolutely had a very tricky time in the first three months, getting to know people, onboarding in the company, struggling to identify and understand the culture when it came to the work. But I inherently believe that if I didn't take that jump, I wouldn't be happy. So it was more the fear of not fulfilling my potential that was driving me. And I think with that came this insatiable respect for risk. And I think often we talk about risk in the sense of danger, but actually it's a really powerful tool that can help us re realize our potential. And it almost goes hand in hand with that. And so there, there will always be an element of risk, which there was for me when you're on that you know, end point and you're going, should I jump? Should I quit my job? I'm 35. Should I break up with my partner? I'm 40. Do I want, you know, I'm hearing this conversation all the time at the moment. And I think my advice to, you know, that conversation and the way that I thought about it was you will never know your boundaries unless you take the jump. And the good thing about taking the jump is that you know where you came from, so you can always go back. But it really is that ability to flex that risk and take it with you on your journey, knowing that there will always be the support of what was before. Just one thing before we move on to the, the next section, just because I think that would, um, what you talked about there leads on quite nicely to, to what we want to talk about next. But it does sound like from what you talked about that you you know this fear of not fulfilling your own potential does take quite a lot of self-belief to know that you have that level of potential do you have any idea of where that self-belief comes from that's actually a great question and something that i also just want to bring up is that having self-belief does not come at the expense of not having insecurities or living with imposter syndrome i have both of those things wildly and I, I think we often talk about really confident self-belief, huge potential over here, you know, CEOs, leaders, like all these people have really championed the way that their potential is. And then on the other side, it's, well, I can't quite get there and I can't take the risk. And actually I would say that I'm a real hybrid of both of those things. I think the self-belief piece for me was I couldn't see anyone else doing the things that I wanted to do. I couldn't see people in the room when we were talking with potential clients or current clients at you know exposure and, and Freud. I, I didn't feel like people were seeing the work the way that I was looking at it, which was very 
community-led, social impact-driven, really kind of philosophical in the way that how is this brand, and generally, you know, I work with brands, going to show up in society and make a difference so that people want to buy into the philosophy of it and the foundation of the value of it, and they are going to honor the product or service or, you know, thing that they're wearing and ultimately become an advocate for that brand so that we are creating almost like communities of advocates that are sharing your product DNA or, you know, USP in in whatever form. Um, And I I remember sitting in rooms being like, I I don't think we're doing it right. And I don't think that we are leveraging brands to their capacity. I mean, this is sort of, you know, five to eight years ago. And in the sense of, I really believe that they were going to come in and have a social, economic, political, cultural responsibility and weight in society. And that's exactly the purpose and, and the situation that we're in now is that there is an expectation of brands to be mission-driven in some shape or form and show up whether it's gender equality or sustainability or climate change or mental health. All the strongest brands have put community-first social needs at their epicentre. And that's something that as an individual, I'm so passionate about that I believe in that so much. It's not to say that I don't have insecurities and you know, challenges in terms of the day-to-day work, but I am fully committed and confident to brands living, breathing in that space and the responsibility that brands need to have in culture today. And I felt that intrinsically when I started out in the industry. And so now I'm sort of at a position where I've sort of watched and been part of a lot of that evolution. And that gives me, you know, reassurance and confidence that my instincts and the way that I see the work that brands do is the direction in which the industry is moving. But that's not, yeah, that's not to say that it doesn't come without other personal challenges and you can absolutely fulfill your potential with, you know, insecurities and and those challenges in tow. I, th- I think we need to stop seeing it as kind of an either or and more of this hybrid model of, you know, purpose and performance and putting your purpose first, but knowing that your performance will follow if you follow that purpose lead. And you worked with a lot of brands when you were working agency side. And then in 2017, you decided to take the jump over to brand side and move to Bumble as vice president of international marketing and communications. So firstly, what what sparked that decision to move over and put your energy into a single brand? It's a good question. I actually never thought that I would go in-house to a brand, more so than anything, because I loved working with different challenges. My clients at the time at Exposure were Converse. Um, I worked with Uniqlo. I was getting to travel to Japan. I was working on some really fascinating arts projects. Um, And I really loved that, like the dynamic nature of coming into the office. I also just loved agency life. I feel like the, the kind of energy, if you've ever been or worked in an agency, it's just full of vibrancy. And, and that I find really kind of infectious when it comes to the work. But I, I met Whitney, the, the founder and CEO of Bumble, and we actually brought on Bumble as a client to Exposure. So we worked on the account or I headed up the account for close to a year. Um, and it was it was a hard decision. I remember sitting with the CEO of Exposure at the time, Raul, who was my mentor and an incredible leader, and really working through it with him. You know, what's the what's the draw to Bumble? You know, what does that mean for Exposure? What could my role be at Exposure? And he was... 
he was an incredible, probably the strongest leader I've ever had in terms of really supporting me through that decision. Um, in the end, the challenge and opportunity at Bumble was something I had never imagined in my career in terms of grow a team, build a team, um, scale in you know as many markets as possible, um, oversee marketing. At the time, I was only doing kind of communications and, and kind of strategy around that. And so it just felt like a new chapter for me to really get my teeth into marketing more broadly. Um, and I knew that long-term, if I had the privilege and, and luxury of controlling how we take brands to market, the impact and potential output I could have on society would just be greater than working at an agency that kind of worked on one you know, announcement release for uh, you know, a new pair of sneakers, for example, which was super cool to work on. And we got to do loads of really cool kind of cultural music stuff, which was just really fun. But what I miss was that how am I showing up with this work in society long term? And Bumble and the kind of ambition of Whitney really gave me that springboard. And, you know, jumping then to Formulary e into Headspace, I've sort of followed that that red thread of how do we take brand work and the budgets and the investment and use them for good long term so that that's probably why I took the role but I do yeah I definitely do miss that kind of agency life especially in this remote remote work environment and when when you moved over to Bumble where were they as a business at this time so I was the third full-time hire outside of the states they had a couple of interns and they had a really brilliant guy called Julian who was running their field ambassador team, I want to say. I mean, that was sort of university marketing. It was working with, you know, ambassadors at universities around the UK to give them merch and very guerrilla, very guerrilla based, very um, low level costs. It was just about creating virality at a university level by bringing merch and parties and discount codes and fly postering, you know, really one channel um, kind of guerrilla focused marketing. Uh, and my my task was to come on board and hire a team in all of the other priority regions internationally. Um, so I ended up looking after Australia um, and Germany. We launched in the Nordics, the Netherlands. Obviously the UK was a really powerful region. But at the time, I mean we were left we were less than 50 at the company when I when I joined. I think after a year we were a hundred. I remember going to an offsite and we all got a badge being like first hundred employees. And I actually, looking back now, don't think I took advantage enough of how small and how exciting that time was. But it was a lot of trial and error. There was a lot of like marketing campaigns that we did that were great. Some weren't so great. Um, but Whitney was really supportive of this kind of experimentation culture, this, this test and learn growth mindset. Like how do we keep sharpening channels and the only way that we do that is by testing different creative in different channels in different ways and so that's something that I definitely took from her and the work that I did there is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all marketing strategy and that the best thing you can do is siphon off budget to experiment knowing that the channels in the world and our consumers are, are kind of moving at such a fast pace that um, we need to adapt and evolve with them simultaneously. I mean, that sounds ideal, really, doesn't it? Being able to test with multiple different things. When when you stepped into that role for Bumble, what was your like main focus? Like your main challenge or goal, if you were, of that role? What were you, what what was that for you? 
We wanted to help as many women around the world feel empowered to make the first move. That was that was the line, that was the brand, that was what every woman and man in the company joined to support with. So the biggest challenge for me was how can I get this to as many women as possible in the shortest amount of time? And how can we take dating and the very simple functionality of swiping and making the first move and create a movement around that that makes sense in business, makes sense in your working environment and your friendships? Like how how do we use brand marketing and the work that we were doing not only to get people to download the dating app, but also to send a broader message culturally that, you know, we needed to reverse engineer the way that the genders interacted. Even at the time when I joined, you know, I had friends that wouldn't go up to a guy in a bar. You know, we we as women tend to ask for less pay rises, ask for promotions less often. There's just a systemic culture around um, the way that women approach life overall that has sort of seen women have the backseat option and really what Bumble was doing was saying we're going to start with dating but the intention here is to reverse the psychology around why that is knowing that it's a systemic issue that existed throughout various industries and categories all the way through to you know our legislation and and kind of policy at a governmental level Um, so that was sort of the vision and the ambition and it was that bold Uh, But it started with encouraging a single woman on a single day to make the first move in the app. And I think it was really representative of how we needed to shift and watching those numbers come in and the brand and business grow felt really indicative of the future of gender equality long term. And I think that's when I got really excited about the work that brands, brands can do, not just kind of for their commercial revenue bottom line, but more on a broader cultural level. And, and that's something I'll definitely take with me for the rest of my career. I think it's fair to say now that it was a success. Well, you know, that growth strategy to go global and, and to make sure that you, you were basically empowering women to, to be the first movers, firstly in that dating scenario, like you say, but what in your mind was the most effective channel for that? Was there something specifically that was that was really, really powerful in your approach to, to, to being able to achieve that? I think it was two things. I think the first, which is so underrated and underestimated these days, is the internal culture. Every single employee was, you know, living, breathing for the brand and the work that we did. It felt often like we were working for an NGO and we were part of an army of unified thinkers that were moving society forward. And I think with that comes insatiable work ethic, brilliant collaboration, Um, advocacy on a personal level you know every single individual in the company was sharing with their network leveraging their network talking about it you know outside of working hours and it didn't feel like work it felt like we were on a mission together Um, and it was a very unique environment but I think Whitney set the tone quite brilliantly for the fact that it was mission driven and we we would never compromise that for commercial gain. And so, you know, when women needed us or when it came to International Women's Day or when there was a you know global crisis of some sort, the mission came first. And I think we didn't know it at the time, but the, the performance followed because the commitment of our members and more broadly, you know, potential new members to want to align with that thinking which just was so natural. 
So I think the internal culture and the way that we hired and collaborated and we felt really connected to this North Star goal. And it's something that we're talking about at Headspace in terms of, you know, what is that North Star goal at the moment for us in improving the health and happiness of the world? And how do we unify our internal culture on that journey to show them the impact that their everyday work is making? I think that for me is number one. It is from the inside out and internal culture is the most powerful way to, to grow a brand, knowing that those are the people doing the work. And then I think the second piece without question was community. So we really focused on community marketing um, and considering that it was a an online app, you know, to bring community offline at the moment, you know, I, I hear a lot of my network talking about needing to make sure that they're showing every dollar for every, you know, ROI to their CFOs. And we were given the freedom to build community, knowing that that sense of collectiveness and togetherness off the app would only incentivize the brand long-term to draw people into the app. And, you know, we're looking at it a lot at the moment for Headspace in terms of mental health. You know, it's easier to bring women together that are struggling or have challenges because there's a sense of togetherness that women typically and and kind of historically have unified around. Uh, But when it comes to mental health, for example, it's a very individual, unique, stigmatized subject that building community around is probably even more needed, but is harder to tackle in the most appropriate way, knowing the sensitivities of mental health. Um, But I would absolutely say that building that community marketing muscle, both at universities, but also in industries, whether it was bringing women together in film to get more women behind the camera so there were more stories in front of the camera, whether it was in fashion, getting more women um, to kind of show and lead and design Um, music, there weren't enough women in the music industry, producing, DJing, how could we support with that? Tech, we kind of unlocked and unleashed various different initiatives to get more women into the STEM category. And so I think within each of those different brackets, there was a sense of how do we build community within this, knowing that that sense of togetherness kind of just galvanizes the the brand and its mission and purpose even more. And just very quickly, because I think it's important to touch on this next step, you then went from Bumble to Formula E, which is a a big change in both the market that you're operating in and the the context of the of the communications that you're doing. What what encouraged that move before you you went on to Headspace? So I I joined Formula E during the pandemic, and I'd I'd left Bumble. I felt like I had built an incredible team. The work they were doing was amazing. I was there for you know nearly three years, and I felt like I was ready for for kind of my next challenge. And that's something else that I wanted to mention is a really powerful thing that I've learned recently is you knowing when to quit or leave is actually more powerful than knowing when to stay. And as I was kind of reading through your brief earlier, I was looking back at your questions and thinking, yeah, I kind of knew when to leave Freud's, even though it was after, you know, a year, I knew when to leave LA, I knew when to leave Exposure and I knew when to leave Bumble. And I I don't think I, re- I even realized that that was kind of a, a thread through my career, but it definitely has kind of challenged me in every new role and given me that reason to learn again in a different industry. But for, yeah, Formula E, interestingly, I, I mean, I've never even owned a car, so that was an interesting choice for me. But I absolutely fell in love with my boss who was over from McLaren. His name was Henry Chilcott. Um, and the way that he thought about live entertainment, sustainability, product innovation, all of these pieces of language that I had 
been committed to and had worked at other companies doing, but had never really assumed that that was how they would build a motorsport brand and how they would take electric racing ahead of, you know, Formula One, which still has, you know, predominant interest from that same audience that they're trying to reach. So I actually joined because I thought the challenge was really, really interesting. And I thought I could bring something else to the business, knowing that they were and are looking to excite and bring in a new generation of motorsport fans that, you know, in 10 years time will be driving electric cars. So a lot of the same manufacturers, you know, Mercedes race with them, McLaren race with them, Jag, lots, you know, lots of the same manufacturers. It was, it was just a, a new way for me to see the industry. And I felt like it was going to, and it will be the future of motorsport. I think they've got a little bit you know, of, of work to do around their drivers who are so incredible, but kind of getting their profiles out there and all of that kind of untapped potential I was super excited about. And then hearing Henry's vision, you know, coming from McLaren, but he's an ex-agency ad creative guy and he was just absolutely incredible. And I really, really enjoyed working there. And we we launched this incredible campaign with Uncommon Agency that was all about kind of reflecting back on climate change and the future of climate change and I was really proud of that campaign and it just so happened that I got I got headhunted by Headspace as, as I had it was literally the day we launched that that campaign um and again another really challenging decision and I had a long conversation with Henry I'd only been there 10 months um and I'd really committed to Formula E the team were great product was great I added a very different you know value lens as a young woman in the motorsport industry but the again the opportunity at Headspace to essentially do what I did at Bumble which was build a team there was no team based here expand in new markets scale in hard to reach audiences innovate within the product be involved with the content and it was too good of an opportunity to to turn down um but yeah I have to stay here for a while now because I can't keep I can't keep jumping <laughs> around <laughs> stay still Louise <laughs> and I, yeah I just wanted to make sure that we touched on that so that people listening could understand how varied and inspiring in a lot of ways your, your career has been so you've mentioned that you moved then or you were headhunted by headspace it's obviously an app that is dedicated to improving the health and happiness of, of the world and i feel like it's 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 clear what may have drawn you to that mission because it's a very positive mission but what role do you play in pushing that mission forward i see us as the gatekeepers to supporting millions of people through the content and product experience that we have. I have been kind of up and down mental health wise for most of my career, struggling with anxiety specifically. And I remember always being told, you know, you are not your thoughts and finding that sentence quite challenging when something like anxiety is a very physical effect so even though conceptually and intellectually I could understand you are not your thoughts, I was like, no, I get it. But the physical implications of being anxious and trying to manage that in environments that were stress-inducing or high pressure, I, I struggled to manage it. And it was only when I started using Headspace about five years ago that I really realized the benefit of taking a breath, gratitude, journaling, meditation, you know, I meditate every morning for only for two minutes, but the ability to leverage the tools within Headspace's kind of content library has just changed 
my ability to manage anxiety and whether it's stress, anxiety, sleeplessness, grief, you know, the the amount of support that is needed right now for people in the world. I didn't feel like Headspace were doing a strong enough job taking that to as many people internationally. And so when they came to me as someone that can relate to those feelings and use the product to help myself, I really feel passionately that we have a duty to bring it to as many people as possible. Um, and in some cases, you know, we're running big campaigns that, and Raheem Sterling is a good example of this, that is focused on reaching out to new audiences and re-educating on the conversation around mindfulness, knowing that it's a very privileged conversation. Even the semantics of mindfulness and breath work and yoga exists in a very privileged environment. And so the main element for me when I joined was how do we bring this category back down to earth? How do we deconstruct mindfulness in a way that helps any mother, any child, um, any person that has lost someone, who has broken up from someone, who is depressed or struggling or anxious, which, you know, the mental health challenges are inevitable, but they are manageable. Um, and I think that for me is the biggest kind of driver of the work that we do is that we have a tool and data science backed content that is proven to reduce you know, anxiety, support with sleep, um, reduce stress. And I I think that is what definitely drives the team day to day. But everyone that works at Headspace has some relationship with mental health challenges. And I think that ability to relate to those experiences help us to craft campaigns with the right creative message within the right channels that can reach as many people as possible. And you'll see that over the next kind of two years, um, you know, we're building out plans not only to reach new audiences, but also to, to bring new content and new conversations within that content, whether it's climate change or, you know, talking more specifically around women's health. All of this um, we're working on at the moment to bring a more varied content library, knowing that mental health and the challenges people have will just continue to be varied um, on a global level. So definitely, um, yeah. That, that gets me up in the morning, also keeps me up a bit at night. But that's that's why we're here and why we show up every day. Of the channels that you're using to pursue that mission, which are the most effective? So at the moment, we have a very integrated approach to marketing. And so when we're working with an ambassador like Raheem, we are making sure that everything is long-term. There is a social impact layer to it. We're working with his foundation and building a meditation room there. Um, we're working with him on content. He's going to be coming into the app, um, bringing his community on a journey with one of our meditation teachers. We've never done that before with talent. We are working on an initiative called Free for Teens, which will see us offer the product free to anyone under the age of 18, between 12 and 18, which he's going to be spearheading. And then in addition to that, he's obviously going to be front and center of a lot of our global campaigns. And so the idea is that when we work with talent or we work with our content team, that it is fully integrated in fashion and that we are bringing people on the journey, not only from understanding the why, um, where he meditates every day, he meditates to support his performance, his focus, his family life, um, but he also wants to do something good in the world. And so we're working full funnel with him across that. So traditionally, I would say that, you know, we worked on, on kind of singular silo channel strategies. And now the way that we're looking at having the most amount of impact is integrated marketing um, and ensuring that 
from whether it's content or, or celebrity or ambassador that it has kind of a full circle approach to it so that it is as authentic as it can be and help as many people as, as possible. And I was just wondering, I wanted to ask if there are any principles that you adhere to throughout your career or that you've created over your career that that you can pass on to to any listeners that you think would benefit to to people listening? Yeah, definitely. I think the number one for me is leadership. You're only as good as your team and I am in service of my team and the broader business. So being impeccable with my word with them is probably number one. Honoring the commitments I make to the business, honoring the commitments I make to the team, enabling partners, ambassadors, team, internal team to feel like we are one unit on this kind of journey and doing so in a way that is led with integrity is definitely my number one. People want to work with good people. The second piece I think for me is this growth mindset and this experimentation piece. And I would encourage anyone at any company to make sure that there is a conversation happening around what are we doing to engage with a growth mindset, knowing that this growth mindset only comes from failing as well as learning. And so you have to operate in a environment where you can test in order to learn. Otherwise, there's no innovation or progression outside of that. Um, And so I, I kind of encourage my team and support them and empower them in those environments to take a risk or take a jump or test a different type of person or figure out a new channel strategy or identify a different market. And and of course, we have our real business priorities that we stay focused on and we honor that day to day. But there is always um, kind of an open door to to experimenting with things that we think could push the business forward. Um, And then I think my third one would probably be I've got a lot of perspective in the last couple of years. Um, I think when you work for a mission driven business or a company that you really care about, whether it's your own or you're working for a brilliant employee, employer, sorry, I think knowing that there's a lot of challenging things happening in the world and remembering that things in the moment can feel stressful and heavy when it comes to the work that we're doing. But the piece that I always come back to is is perspective. You know, the, the mission that we are focused on, whether it was at Bumble, whether it was the team we work with in LA, whether it's the Headspace guys, you know, that perspective of like, we are in service of our members. So when things feel you know, overwhelming, or we have a big project on, or there's a huge campaign, just coming back to center and remembering that it's that perspective and that service of our members that matters the most. And that helps us to make decisions and, you know, be adaptive and agile when challenges arise. And it's definitely something that I think when you work for a high growth tech company, you know, I speak to a lot of people that are just working 24 hours a day because they're pre-IPO and there's a lot of commercial targets. Um, But I think making sure that you always hold on to that perspective of it's important, but it's more important that we stay aligned with our mission. So as soon as we start to get distracted from that, we come back and recognize kind of why we're here and what what the importance of the work we're doing is. And that kind of helps us manage manage challenging times. So this is our last question and it's more personal to you. And it's actually a question that we ask all of our guests at the end of at the end of the interview. And uh, that question is, what one quality do you see within yourself that without you feel you wouldn't succeed? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would probably say collaboration. 
I love working with people. I love supporting people. I love it when an email lands in my inbox and says, we all need to huddle. We need support here. I like it when we face challenges and we need to fix things. I like helping the team through kind of developmental challenges that they might have. And I think collaboration is sort of banded around companies in terms of like, you need to be more collaborative or like we pride ourselves on collaboration, but really in its true and purest form, it's about being someone that people can rely on, that they can trust and that they feel when the shit hits the fan, they're going to be there to help them pick it up. And I would say most, if not all of the jobs that I have been hired for, the leader or my boss or whoever it might be that that kind of brought me on felt that in me. And that's definitely something that I pride myself on, um, that, you know, when the chips are down, you know, I'll go high and I am fiercely loyal within that. And I think that's what companies need. And I think that's how they really find success when you find people that are loyal to the cause, loyal to the brand, but more importantly, collaborative to the people. Amazing. Thank you so much, Louise. Thanks. You have been, this has been great. You're so calming to talk to. Talk to. <laughs> I feel like I've been in a meditation. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Social. Make sure you subscribe to us so you're notified when an episode drops. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing at Campfire, make sure to follow us on the socials in the show notes. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode.